Well, good morning. Good morning. I am honored to be back in this pulpit during another Advent season and delighted to be with you, you brood of vipers. <laughs> what scared you into coming to church this morning? You gotta love John the Baptizer. Or maybe not. A student of mine recently proposed that at a glance, John may seem a bit like a first century Donald Trump. <laughs> Stay with me here. <laughs> Denouncing everybody but himself, full of doom and gloom, terrifying or infuriating his listeners, but still the best show this side of the Sea of Galilee. The crowds came out. Today's text begins. When John showed up and started in on pending judgment, John the baptizer could give you hell or scare it out of you. For John, we're all a bunch of moral losers, and God is coming after us. But on second glance, John's hardly like the Donald at all. For one thing, he's got no ego and cares little for the things of this world. John's a desert hermit, not an urban impresario. The most John and Donald have in common is bad hair. <laughs> it took you all a minute to think about that, didn't it? <laughs> Instead, John stands in a line of Hebrew prophets that runs from Isaiah and Ezekiel to Amos and the little-known Zephaniah, whose words we read this morning. So perhaps a, John's a lot more like Martin Luther King, Jr., challenging a culture that claims to be self-aware, compassionate, and divinely chosen, but isn't necessarily so. John calls the hand of the first century religious and political power brokers, cuts to the chase, tells them straight up, do not depend on Abrahamic exceptionalism to determine your relationship with the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Repent of your unrecognized injustice or God just might create a new people from the very stones under your feet. King said similarly 20 centuries later. In 1954, an irate city father in Montgomery, Alabama told the new pastor of the Dexter Avenue Baptist Church, I'm quoting here, we have had such peaceful and harmonious race relations here. Why have you and your associates come to destroy this long tradition? King's response smacks of his earlier Baptist counterpart. 
you have had a sort of negative peace in which the Negro too often accepted his state of subordination. But this is not true peace. True peace is not merely the absence of tension. It is the presence of justice. The tension we see in Montgomery today is the necessary tension that comes when the oppressed rise up and start to move forward toward a permanent positive peace. So for both baptizers, repentance from injustice was the only way out. The judgment that prophets like John and Martin articulate isn't merely a cold, hard warning to unjust societies and peoples. Underneath those threats of imminent culture foreboding, there are signs of wondrous grace. Then and now, God may be acting in strange and unique ways with grace that outdistances all of us, today outdistancing Jew, Christian, Muslim, Buddhist, Hindu, Baha'i, and non alike. It is a restless, dangerous grace that cannot be contained, a grace that involves both warning and transformation. And Luke's gospel says, some people got it. They crowded their way into River Jordan with John, washed clean as a sign of a new start in an old, old world. But even then, beware, John says. Don't repent unless you decide to work it off. Do something worthy of repentance. Perhaps one of the best things about good religion is that it gives us little clues, rituals, prayers, ideas, even warnings that help us find our way to grace. Perhaps one of the worst things about good religion is that it gives us little clues, rituals, prayers, ideas, even warnings by which we attempt to manipulate what we do not deserve. That is the grace reduced to entitlement. We know the prayers, we know the formulas. We have all the right religious credentials. We think we can activate grace when and where we want it. For all its immediate insolence, Prophetic religion reminds us that sometimes grace still astounds, can't be manipulated, takes us by surprise, and carries us where we do not want or never thought to go. Yet interpreting prophetic religion is never easy and often dangerous. The paradoxical words of the old spiritual, God's gonna set this world on fire one of these days, hallelujah, can anticipate the justice of the 13th Amendment 150 years ago this month, or a massacre of innocents in Colorado or California 
just weeks ago. John warns the crowds of doomsday, of great confrontation between good and evil. Moral transformation is the only alternative evidenced in a new baptism and works appropriate to repentance. And the crowds, scared, frustrated, confused, ask in desperation, so what would you have us do? If the world and we are as messed up as you say, baptizer, then what would you have us to do? When the prophet's ethical imperative reveals our collective moral deficit, what then? What can we do to avoid or at least delay the wrath that is to come? Two millennia later, aren't we still asking questions about what to do regarding global warming, gun violence, racism, terrorism, economics, economics, economics? And oh yes, uh, about ourselves. And like John's first listeners, we're still frustrated. On the last day of my church history class, Christian history class, as we reviewed the messiness of the church's past and present, one student blurted out, why couldn't Jesus have been more specific about the things we're supposed to do? There are so many things he just didn't tell us how to work it out. Nothing like a great unanswered questions to kill a semester. But wait, for all his bluster, when asked what to do, John is abidingly pragmatic, linking his culture and ours with surprising commonality. His instructions are concrete and direct, like John himself. He doesn't speak of what we have to know, but what we need to do. If you have two coats, give one to the person who has none, and whoever has food must do likewise. Get it? Amid all our differences over what the Bible says and means, might we agree on this one certainty third Sunday in Advent? across the Hebrew, Christian, and Muslim scriptures, it is clear that God is on the side of the poor. John reminds them and us of that reality and demands action with, for, among the broken ones, physically, economically, culturally. Then he goes on, as the New Revised Standard Version wonderfully translated. Even tax collectors came to be baptized. Does nothing change? No offense if you work for the IRS, but there is hope. And even the tax collectors, even the tax collectors ask, teacher, what should we do? And John sets them and us straight. Collect no more than the amount prescribed for you. Don't resign, just play fair. Soldiers also ask, well, what should we do? 
Again, John's sense of justice is strikingly pragmatic. Do not extort money from anyone by threats or false accusations. Sound advice for soldiers and police then and now. And John adds, be satisfied with your wages. Uh-oh. Let's say this about that. John the baptizer never knew about the veterans administration or the fraternal order of police. Sometimes wages are a justice issue too. So even our best prophets can miss a thing or two from time to time. So here we are with prophetic warnings and divine judgment pending and the, rem and the remedy the prophet offers us is the truth that's been there all along. What do you want us to do? Clothe the ones who are cold, feed the ones who are hungry, don't cheat each other, don't threaten each other, or make fal false accusations against the innocent. Do justice, love mercy, walk humbly with God and each other. And when you fail that, repent and do better. But acting on such repentance can take a while. On the day before the recent mass shootings in Paris, that same history class discussed the infamous St. Bartholomew's Day massacre in Paris, August 24, 1572, when French Catholics, with their king's permission and the Pope's implicit encouragement, massacred some 3,000 uh, 3, Protestant Huguenots in Paris and perhaps 8,000 more throughout France. It was not until 425 years later that Pope John Paul II issued something of an apology, noting that on that day, Christians did things which the gospel condemns, and concluding, belonging to different religious traditions must not constitute today a source of opposition and tension. That last line from the late Pope resounds in our American ears right now. And what of slavery? A variety of Protestant denominations, Episcopalian, Presbyterian, Baptist, for example, have apologized for their participation in or acquiescence to slavery and Jim Crow laws, but they didn't do it till the late 20th century. The Southern Baptist Convention, born in 1845 in divisions over slavery, offered their apology in 1995, declaring, I'm quoting, that we apologize to all African Americans for condoning and or perpetuating individual and systemic racism in our lifetime and we genuinely repent of racism of which we have been guilty, whether consciously or unconsciously. And what of us? What are we doing in the church and the culture right now that future generations will have to repent of for us a century or more from now? The baptizer was right. Repentance is never easy, nor glib. Apologies ought to cost us something. 
Religious and racial reconciliation requires authentic transformation. For that, no apologies. John says such transformation is essential, so essential that God is sending another who will bring not just baptism with water, but with fire. And Herod, Herod Antipas, the local political hack, got worried. The Roman historian Josephus commented that, I'm quoting, when others too joined the crowds about him, because they were aroused to the highest degree by his sermons, Herod became alarmed. Eloquence that had so great an effect on humanity might lead to some form of sedition, for it looked as though they would be guided by John in everything they did. Sermons can have that effect, can't they? Whether preached by Peter the Hermit in 1096, urging medieval millennials to, to crusade against infidel Muslims, or from the pulpit of the Dexter Avenue Baptist Church 60 years ago this month. Josephus continued, Herod decided, therefore, that it would be much better to strike first and be rid of John before his work led to an uprising than to await an upheaval. So the baptizer goes to prison. And soon he has his own questions, Matthew's Gospel said, poignantly inquiring of Jesus, that other presumed prophet. Are you the one? Or should we wait? for another. From prison, even the best of the prophets can have second thoughts. And how does Jesus respond? With a doctrinal declaration that he is God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made of one substance with the Father, as the Nicene Creed would say. No. He simply says this. Tell John what you have seen and heard. The lame walk, the deaf hear, the blind see, and the poor have heard some good news. For John, for Jesus, and for us this Advent, a response to hunger and poverty, suffering and injustice is not a mere Advent truism. It is the door to God's new day in the world. Amid all the mass shootings, the bad religion, the continuing racism, and the inflammatory rhetoric of our times, let's decide to do some justice, to cultivate some compassion, to respond to the brokenness in ourselves and in our world. At this moment in our history, we've got no choice by God,
by God. By grace. Amen.